all of you sports junkies might have noticed that uh, the article in Sports Illustrated this week that focused on the 2007 Appalachian State uh, University Mountaineers who in that year for the very first game of the college football season traveled across the country from Little Boone, North Carolina up to Ann Arbor, Michigan to face the the number five ranked University of Michigan Wolverines in uh, the uh, 109,000 seat stadium called the Big House. And it was the school, the little school who had no fighting chance, toe-to-toe with the champion. And at the end of regulation, uh, when Michigan was about to kick a a 35-yard chip shot field goal to win, this, this backup safety from Appalachian State it flies around the corner and lays out, and he blocks it, and they, they pull off the stunning upset. Now, if you've ever followed episodes, events like that, you know that the best way to experience them is by listening to the local radio announcers when they are describing the event. So when we were in the Fiesta Bowl and uh, Ian Johnson, he runs statue left into the end zone. If you're listening to oh, um, uh, the... Jeff Caves and, and Paul Jay, when they were making the, the call, um, they just absolutely go berserk and they start yelling and you can't understand a single thing that is happening other than the fact that you won. Um, well, that's exactly what happens when the local radio announcers in Boone uh, have this event that takes place. They just start, the, they, they go nuts. And I find that every time I listen to to something like that, I almost get teary-eyed <laughs> without without fail because um, because they're ultimately stories about vindication. You're too small. You're too slow. You you don't deserve to be on the field with these guys. You're not good enough, and it's the it's the ultimate. Well, if, that, if that's what you think, then we'll show you a story of vindication. You may not have thought about the resurrection of Jesus Christ in those terms, but I guarantee you that they did. And so we come to the, I think, 35th and final sermon in the Gospel of Mark. We've been working through this book for, for quite a while now. And we come to Mark chapter 1542, the story of the resurrection. Next week, we're going to go head down to the book of Genesis and uh, look at the the life of the patriarchs, Abraham, Jacob, and Joseph. The gospel is taught to us by our great, great, great grandfathers in the faith. But today, we, we get Easter in August. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that that is the the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, Arimathea, a small village about 20 miles to the east of Jerusalem, Joseph, a respected member of the council, the Jewish high council, the Sanhedrin, he was probably, for those of you who are familiar with the events of, of Good Friday, the particulars of Good Friday, he was probably present at the nighttime trial that took place in the high priest's house when they pronounced 
uh, judgment on Jesus, though he, he certainly wouldn't have agreed with their judgment. But this member, respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have that he should have already died and summoning the centurion he asked him whether he was already dead and when he learned from the centurion that he was dead he granted the corpse to Joseph and Joseph brought a linen shroud and taking him down wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph was was there where was the, where he uh, was laid when the sabbath was passed mary magdalene mary the mother of james and salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him and very early on the first day of the week when the sun had risen they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb and looking up they saw that the stone was rolled back it was very large and entering the tomb they saw a young man sitting on the right side dressed in a white robe and they were alarmed and he said to them do not be alarmed you seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified he is risen he is not here see the the place where they laid him but go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And the women went out and they fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them and they said nothing to anyone for they were very afraid. Now here's how I want to make the connection between resurrection and vindication. The the people of Israel, uh, maybe it's a little crass to say it, but I mean they they were the little school from Boone, North Carolina, who was always being conquered by and oppressed by larger, more powerful nations. Of course, I mean, it's not even fair to use a football analogy because to to be oppressed in that world means to lose all of your freedom and liberty and eventually to lose your life. Um, But they, they, they were ridiculed, not to, not that they were too small or too slow, but they were ridiculed as the scum of the earth. The, the we will rid the world of you worthless Jews. And, and where is this God that you say you're privileged and to and know and, and you talk about? They were just mocked utterly mercilessly by the, the Greeks and the Assyrians and the Babylonians, etc. And what they longed for was a great victory, a vindication. And that is what they were looking for in the resurrection itself. In the first century, they believed, the people of that time believed that there would be a resurrection that would take place at the end of the age, as they called it, when all of the righteous of Israel be raised up to life and would receive finally the, the reward that they had, had long been waiting for. And God would finally say, you are mine, well done, uh, I reward you, I claim you. There'll be this great reversal of fortune. And at the very same time, the wicked would be raised up and they would, they would be judged. The, the oppressors and the mockers and, and the scorners would receive the punishment that was due their sin. 
that's what they were hoping for. And that is what God gives them with this major twist. Because instead of resurrecting all the righteous at the end of the age, God instead resurrects just one of the mocked of Israel. One righteous man who he raises up smack dab in the middle of history, uh, a would-be crucified criminal, vilified as a liar and as a fraud and as evil, oppressed by the powers that be. God raises him up and vindicates him as the divine son of God and as the conqueror of death and Hades itself. And, And Jesus wins like the most improbable stirring victory And this was God's way of saying that in him, you can experience that too. In him is the victory and the vindication that you, my people, have always been looking for. Mark 15 gives us a great story, and I want us to go back to the story for a minute and look at its characters beginning with this Joseph of Arimathea. I I never realized until this week just how courageous it was for Joseph to go and ask for the body of Jesus. I mean, remember, Jesus had been crucified as as effectively a, a, a rebel against the government. This crucified on the charge of, of treason is... is lifting himself up as a, as a false king. You remember that Peter was so scared out of his wits just, just being associated with this, this Jesus by, by a, a 15-year-old slave girl. What a, what a considerable risk Joseph was taking in going and asking for the, for the body of Jesus. I mean, it would be like uh, an imperial stormtrooper going to Darth Vader uh, asking for the robes of Obi-Wan. <laughs> You know, that's going to raise a few eyebrows and and some suspicion. It was a considerable risk. In the Jewish calendar, the Jewish reckoning of the days, uh, a day starts not at midnight in the middle of the night, but a new day begins at sunset. You you probably know that. If Jesus Christ died at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, as the gospel accounts tell us, and if sunset was at 6 o'clock or 7 o'clock at night, then you realize how precious few hours Joseph actually had in order to, to do all of the preparations that were necessary. He had to go to Pilate and wait on Pilate's response. Pilate sends out a centurion. The, the centurion has to walk out of the city and check things out and come back. It, he has just a few hours to obtain the body and prepare it. And so he does this as well as he possibly can. We know that Jesus was buried in Joseph's ancestral family tomb. Um, It was quite common for rich Jews in Palestine in that day to be buried in caves. And there, we know that there was an abandoned stone quarry just outside the the city. And uh, it was used by the rich people to bury their dead. And so presumably Joseph takes, or has his servants take, the the body of Jesus there out into the stone quarry and begins what would have been a two-stage burial process. You would take the corpse 
and you'd wrap it in some linen, in this case, very expensive linen fabric. And you would pack inside the folds of the fabric a a very aromatic, fragrant spice paste. Uh, Spice pack. (laughs) (laughs) Because because the family tombs were reused for multiple family members, and you wanted to, you know, keep down the stench as the body decomposes. So they take, they wrap up the body, and they set it on a shelf inside the cave, and there it would lie for one to two years until all of the organs in the flesh had decomposed. And then after the two-year period, they would gather up the bones of the corpse And you may have heard of an ossuary before, a bone box. They would place the bones of the deceased in a box that would then be set on the the floor of, of the cave. So Jesus has no family in Jerusalem and no family tomb. And so if Jesus is a crucified criminal, if nobody did anything to help, then his body would have been probably buried in a shallow grave. Um, Joseph... Joseph says, I'm willing to be called a traitor of my, of my people. I'm lo- willing to lose all of my reputation as being a member of the high council. Um, I'm willing to be rendered ceremonially unclean for the next seven days because I'm going to touch a dead body. I'll be ceremonially un- unclean for one of the great festivals of the Jewish calendar, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. I'm going to do all of that so that this poor man might be buried in a rich man's tomb. In the next scene, we have the three women who come at first light on Sunday morning. And these women know that they're not strong enough to move this massive stone in front of the tomb, which you would place there in order to keep animals or grave robbers out. They... They show up just hoping that someone stronger will be there to help them move the the, the rock would be cut probably in a uh, it was a flat rock in a, in a circle shape it was placed in a channel that was carved at the bottom of the tomb entrance and they're just hoping that somebody's there to help and here's this young man dressed in white sitting calmly explaining to them that, that in code language Jesus has been raised what does that mean raised. Go and tell his disciples, and especially the disciple who had denied him, Peter, what happens in scene two. You notice that the women flee in terror, and they tell nobody. They fail in the Great Commission. Those of you who have done 35 now sermons in the Gospel of Mark know that that sounds a little fishy. Because all throughout the gospel, the disciples, the male disciples, well, they're the knuckleheads. They don't actually get the message. But the women are always, they're always the ones who are faithful and they get it. They're solid. Why would Mark end his gospel so abruptly with the the best characters in the story, the women, failing to do what they were told to do. And why would Mark, given the fact that he'd spent such a long amount of time predicting the resurrection of Jesus, cut off the story right at the point that we're going to find out whether or not it actually happened? It just doesn't add up. And that is why the 
overwhelming majority of scholars today believe that we have actually lost the last page, the original last page in the Gospel of Mark. Your Bibles, some of your Bibles have there in italics maybe verses 9 through 20, but like nearly everybody is convinced that those were, were later scribal editions. We've lost the last page. I mean, if you imagine just a, a folio, it's not uncommon to lose the cover page or the last page. Or if you imagine a scroll, it's not that hard to, to see the, the rightmost column of the scroll being accidentally torn off. And that's exactly what we think has happened. It was, it was torn off. And, and we're left with this abrupt ending of the women fleeing and fear and, and, and not doing what they're, what they're told to do. Which is totally unsatisfying. What if... What if uh, we had the last page? So in the second century, you get this, this writing called the Gospel of Peter, late second century apocryphal writing where some really kooky people decide that they're going to give us the last page. And here is what the Gospel of Peter, not biblical, describes. It describes two angels descending in great brightness upon the tomb from a rift that has open up in heaven. And the, the angels, perhaps with a little wave of their hand, the stone is rolled away under its power. And the soldiers who are standing there guarding the tomb are frightened. And if you're a frightened soldier, what do you do in that instance? You call for the Jewish elders to come over and, and watch what happens next. So they, they call the Jewish elders over. And as they watch together, three figures emerge from the tomb two of them who are supporting a third. Um, and following behind them is a cross suspended in the air. The two angels that had descended from heaven have now grown to an enormous size, reaching to the heavens in height, as tall as, as the sky that they came from. But the third person whom they are supporting is even taller still. Quote, overpassing the heavens, this colossal Jesus. And a voice calls out from heaven and says that Jesus has preached to the dead. And the soldiers and the elders who are standing there hear a voice reply, yes, it is true. And they're like, where did that, where did, who said that? And then they realize it was the cross that had, had spoken back in reply. And then the story cuts to this awesome chase scene uh, from on the streets of Los Angeles involving Ferraris and... <laughs> okay, it was funnier on paper then. <laughs> <laughs> what you have to admire, love, appreciate about the gospel accounts of both the cross and the resurrection is how truly non-sensational they are. The, the fact that they are as understated as they are really does lend to their believability. They're, they're very understated when they describe the events of Easter morning, and, uh, and that's what makes them believable. But what if we did have the last page of the, Mar the Gospel of Mark? Could we reconstruct it? Well, yes, here's what I think it said. It said, verse 9... Eight, rather. The women fled from the tomb. 
trembling and, and astonishment, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. But the real verse 9 says, And immediately Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up, and they took hold of his feet, and they worshipped him. And Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid, but go and tell my brothers to go up to Galilee, and there they will see me. And the disciples went to Galilee, and when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted in their hearts. When Jesus appeared, he, he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart. And he said to them then, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey, observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. I just wonder if, if that actually didn't originate in the Gospel of Mark. Some of you can recall back to your college or high school days when you read the work of a famous French existentialist philosopher, Albert Camus. Camus, uh, one of the great thinkers of the 20th century. And the story goes that Camus was in one of these philosophical discussions that philosophers often have with each other or with someone else one day. And, and he wanted to make a point. He said, he said to the man who was sitting across the table from him in a little little French um, uh, restaurant. He said, tell me what you enjoy doing the most. I am going to give you 24 hours, all the money and resources that you need to, in, to do that thing, to enjoy that thing as much as you want, uh, whatever it is. But at the end of the time, I am going to shoot you in the head. Now, if you know that will be the case, I ask you this. Will your 24 hours be much fun? Camus' point, he was saying that that is what it's like to be human. That is the human predicament. The grim reality of our impending death is like the, the loaded pistol at the end of 24-hour period, just waiting to go off. And if you know that, if you think about that, then all of the things that you do in this life that seem meaningful and enjoyable, they kind of, they are marginalized by that knowledge. They lose a bit of their luster by the fact that, that there's nothing but black extinction 24 hours later. At least that was the case for Camus because he didn't believe in God and he certainly didn't believe in an afterlife. You know, most of your great thinkers of the last 200 years saw the, the futility of the darkness. Woody Allen has this telling quote. He was not the most happy-go-lucky of men, but he, he, said, he, said, he said that I always see death's head lurking. Quote, I could be sitting at Madison Square Garden at the most exciting basketball game and everybody's cheering and everything is thrilling and one of the players is doing something spectacular and my thought will be, he's only 28 years old and I only wish he could savor this moment in some way because you know, this is as good as it's going to get for him. And when you think about it, he's right. 
if when you are dead, you're dead, then 28 might be as good as it gets. And people in Boise and everywhere else don't really want to face that grim reality. And so what do we do? We just immerse our lives, immerse ourselves in the the everyday routine of life where every day is, is much like the next day. And you just, you don't think about anything deep. You don't consider any of the big questions. You just keep on going Monday through Friday, looking forward to the to the party, the bar on Friday night, and you you just don't you don't think about it. But if there really is life after the grave, if you were a hundred percent convinced that there was irrefutable proof of life after death won by a conqueror, Jesus Christ. If you knew that beyond a shadow of a doubt, then that would change. Surely it would change the way you think about everything. And you couldn't help but talk about that eventually to other people. You would go and tell Peter and the disciples and and your brother-in-law and your tennis partner and and your boss and, and everybody else at the appropriate time and the appropriate Way that knowledge would be so thrilling and, and exciting for you because it's the knowledge that every human being is, is craving, is dying for. I asked myself this question this week. I said, what, going back to the topic of vindication, what, can, what, what, what could God possibly vindicate me from? It's not like Brad Cheney is being persecuted for his faith by uh, foreign armies and being told that I am the scum of the earth and that, that, that I'm good for nothing and my God is a lie and um, that I'm just a, uh, I'm a blob of, of, of human, um, of, of carbon and oxygen. I mean, I don't have, perhaps you have somebody like that in your life, but I don't. What could I possibly need to be vindicated from? And it was something that somebody said to me after the sermon last week. I need to be vindicated from the shame, uh, a shameful past. Now, I spent a lot of last Sunday's sermon on the cross trying to show to you how in a shame and honor culture, it was the shame and the mockery that that's, that's what would have hurt the most, it wasn't the physical scars and wounds, it was the vilification and how Jesus needed to be released from the shame. He needed to have the shame, you know, dusted off of him and, and uh, he, he needed to be vindicated from the shame. Is there any shame that, that I am being weighed down by, that I need, that I need to be released from? Well, Yes. Are there any mocking critics out there in our lives whose mouths we just long to to zip up and silence? Yes. Um, There's a little condemning voice inside of every one of our heads that is always calling us pathetic. Um, It's telling us we're just a pathetic excuse for a Christian and a pathetic excuse for a father and and pastor. 
Fred Harrell, who's a pastor, who is a pastor at a PCA church in San Francisco, he, he's gone on the streets of the city and just asked people this question. He said, here's the question. What do you think comes into God's mind when he thinks about you? What comes into God's mind when he thinks about you? And he says, when, when people answer that, they have that look in their eye like they're really being honest. The answer that he hears more than any other is that God is disgusted with me. That God is disappointed and he's asking non-Christians that, that question, who, who have had no exposure to the gospel, never heard good news, this good news before in their life. But isn't it kind of twisted that, like, he could have asked you that question on one day of this week, and that's probably what you would have answered to. I suspect that is what you need vindicated from. Um, don't we need our lives hidden together in Christ to experience this resurrection vindication so that when he comes out of the grave you know, brushing off the shame and the mockery by the power of the Spirit, that that, what is true of him, is true of us. Though all the courts of mankind condemn him to death as, as, as a filthy scum, traitor, doesn't he need and we need the Father reversing that verdict and that sentence by raising him out of the grave from the dead? The vindication that Jesus experiences is the vindication that his followers do too. Because our lives are hidden with Christ and God. And he who is the conqueror of death promises life to these, to these mortal bodies. And the loss of shame to these, these crazy sinners. It's a great victory. From the Sports Illustrated article, uh, David Jackson does the play-by-play for Appalachian State Radio. Uh, I've never seen him before. This is, I think, the sports information director who says this. I've never seen David... Uh, nervous before he's a consummate pro but when I looked at him with five minutes to go in that game and we were on a break and he said man I am shaking we were we were both so nervous for those kids they had played their butts off and then somebody cuts in from the studio and says that ESPN wants to do some live live look-ins or cut-ins on your radio broadcast and and I said oh boy an old redneck from Goldsboro, North Carolina is going to be on ESPN right now. This is not good. <laughs> Five minutes later, the game clock is down to two seconds, and here's the radio call. 37-yard <laughs> field goal. This is it. This is it right here. Gonzel, the kicker, ready. The snap's good. The hold's down. And the the color commentator who is there with them, he's just screaming. The kick is blocked in the big house. The Mountaineers have just beaten the Michigan Wolverines. Breath. The Mountaineers of Appalachian State, too small, too slow, have just beaten the... That's the victory of Jesus Christ. Uh, as, uh, our lives are hidden in Christ's resurrection, in Christ's vindication, in Christ's victory. 
what do you do after a great victory? Well, you party on the field, <laughs> and then you go out and have the best meal you've ever had in your life. Like, you go to the steakhouse, and you order everything <laughs> on the menu. And that's what we get to have happen now, is we come to the Lamb's High Feast. So let's have the musicians back up.